you're listening to four triple z i can't cue where the okay this is already cooked <laughs> <laughs> you gotta hit on in the corner there see where it says on hey oh, it's four triple z and you're listening I to no idea you can know the idea we scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new let us begin what has physics done for me lately furthermore the equation e is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? Like the whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. You're tuned in to what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth, which is 4ZZZ. Um, beat on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or your smart speaker. Listening via Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from the sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back if you want um, to us or any 4ZZZ website for that matter on the ingenious on-demand feature, which is also found at that URL. We also have a weekly podcast for your listening pleasure, a condensed version of our show name, which is, of course, no idea spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science interlaced with all Australian music with an asterisk. And joining me today, well, joining, we've got no Max, so it is no uh, Max. Jizzy episode two. Jizzy two! <laughs> Jay and Izzy taking over the studio, and maybe Peter. Maybe, if she's... If she's out there, um, <laughs> <laughs> she might be tuning in. I think we've only been on for five minutes, and I can already tell this is going to be that kind of type of episode. Perfect. That's yep. what we love here on Four Triple Z. Just a little bit of shenanigans. Exactly. So we we're going to jump into some weird science. Where this is with Izzy and Jay <laughs> and Peter. <Hey>. Hello. <laughs> we've got you on the air. <laughs> so so have you me from hyperspace. Love it. So, um, it's a bit of a chaotic episode. It is <laughs> so a bit of a chaotic episode, but we're fun. chilling, we're vibing, and you know what is up next? Let's do a little bit of this. Who wants to go first? Hmm. <laughs> I'll go first. Okay. No one else wants to. Okay. I got that. So, wake up, babe. New drugs announced. <laughs> <laughs> new drug just dropped. New drugs announced. Um, so, three new recreational drugs have been never reported in Australia before, were identified by chemists in Australia's only drug site checking location, CanTest, located in Love Canberra. Love that thing. For the mm, last couple really of years, good. we've been seeing um, various stats from this drug testing uh, clinic looking at what type of drugs Australians are consuming recreationally, how many times um, clients who are bringing in those drugs believe their drugs to be accurate because a lot of times white powders can be confused with other white powders so um we officially have had these drugs sent to scientists and clinicians from the australian national university to find out what they are um and these drugs have been told to have an effect similar to stimulant like substances such as mdma ecstasy uh, ec- um and ketamine 
Um, but there is some quite crazy stories behind a few of these drugs. So Professor McLeodoid, who is the lead scientist on the ANU investigation, has said that one substance was submitted for testing with the client believing to be a derivative of Ritalin, which is a well-known stimulant to treat ADHD, mm-hmm. was actually found to be a type of cathinine or a bath salt, which is a dangerous family of drugs that can have that have had cases that have proven lethal. Um, so these are often blends or mixes of things that can be bulked up. The second substance they um, analyzed, which the client believed to be a ketamine-like substance, was actually a new fu- new type of benzopiperzine stimulant, often used as a substitute for MDMA. These derivatives were first emerged in New Zealand in the early 2000s. Not a lot is known about them. Third one was reported as some uncertainty by the client for the identity of the substance. They thought it was a cathinine drug, which is a stimulant similar to the effects of an um, methamphetamine, but it was tested to avoid any nasty surprises. So none of these drugs, um, there is no awareness of their long-term or short-term effects. There is no awareness of what stimulant behavior they have. These are just brand new drugs, uh, whether they are a blend of something, um, that have been found through this testing site. So this is the first time CanTest has detected new substances circulating in the community. They have analysed more than 1,700 samples since opening in July 2020. In late 2020, the chemist made a potentially life-saving discovery after detecting a highly dangerous opioid in some pills as well. So this is just getting a good landscape of what recreational drugs Australians are consuming. This is also coming out in the same week that the Queensland University is launching the Global Drug Survey, which is a survey that is now open and is led by Dr. Chenille Pujek from the UQ School of Public Health, which is aimed to look at make drug use safer for people regardless of the drug's legality. So this is open. I believe if you go on the UQ site, you can have a look at it. You can see their trend reports. And this is the first ever global drug survey as well. So that's <laughs> something fun for I mean, you. It's a good example of why these testing clinics are so mm-hmm. useful and important. Like, not only do they save people's lives, which is incredibly important, but they also give us data to create better health outcomes for everyone. Like, if we didn't have this testing facility and that person didn't bring in mm-hmm. their drugs to be tested, we wouldn't have known this was out there. And you know, theoretically, without knowing, you don't know what to put research into. Exactly. These are things that we can now research and see if there are any short or long-term effects that we need to be aware of. So, like, these facilities are just gold mines of information mm-hmm. and health outcomes for people. So, they found that an evaluation of the first six months of this testing facility, they found that one in ten samples submitted by people, clients, was actually discarded. So, people are making more informed choices about oh. what type of drugs they're consuming, especially, I wanted to bring this up, especially as we are having a lot of festivals coming up for the summer, a lot of people mm. going to Wildlands and other various festivals, and that is definitely a place where recreational drugs are consumed quite openly. So keep your eye out on for these new drugs that are getting tested and always be safe make sure that you know what you're consuming so yeah that was my weird science yeah absolutely um, yeah. did anyone else want to jump in with I'll go, right? go, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. i'm excited about this one some of my favorite stories in science that we cover are of scientists taking the lead from nature and trying to find some of the answers to the world's questions from the critters who already live in it it's my favorite thing when like a new study comes out and it's like we were trying to solve this problem for so long and then we realized butterflies already do it like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh like, yeah from a couple of weeks ago i was like oh oopsies <laughs> <laughs> But a new report in the December 22nd edition of Science um, covered research from the... Sorry? Hmm? It's a great journal. It is a great journal. journal. It really is. Great journal. Covered this new research from the Zhejiang University QS ranking. 
Oh, yeah, this is, this is an impressive one. It's looked at polar bear fur to figure out how they survive so well in the Arctic's extreme cold and how we might be able to survive better there too. So polar bear hair is filled with thousands of pores that trap pockets of air, which helps prevent heat loss. Heat loss, And each hair is surrounded by a flexible waterproof sheath. These researchers created a new fibre that mimics the structure of polar bear hair. Where hair is made of keratin, this new fibre is made from aerogels, which are ultralight porous gels that NASA uses to insulate rocket pods. So that's pretty cool. That's sick. There's great videos of those on YouTube. If you haven't seen them, look up hydrogels. They're really fun. <laughs> oh, nice. The new fibre was made by spinning and freezing a thread of aerogel made from a polymer found in the exoskeletons of shellfish. So one of the things Whoa. I love about this little research is it's like, yeah, we're using rocket parts <laughs> created from Dumbish. shellfish to make bear fur. I don't know. It's so just you know pretty what? cool. The ocean's always on top. Always on top. <laughs> always is the answer. Come I thought me. you'd like that detail. I do like that. It just proves my life's, like, belief. <laughs> the fibre was then coated in a pliable plastic called thermoplastic polyurethane um, in order to make it a bit more durable. The fibres texture falls somewhere between plastic and cotton. So it is it is softer than plastic, but it does have that kind of plasticky vibe to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and polar bear fur is quite thick. So you could imagine that a jumper from this might be um, pretty heavy. But mm-hmm. they found mm-hmm. that a sweater knit from the fibre is about one-fifth the thickness of a down coat, but about similarly warm. So there we go. Ooh, uh, Interesting. Okay. The research you can buy puffer jackets. Right. <laughs> Let's be wearing like fake Melbourne hair in, like, fur. These, yeah. That's like just imagine what I was all thinking. of Melbourne just decked out in these knits. That's all I'm saying. I I think there's a chance. Might be a bit too warm for <laughs> Melbourne, I think. <laughs> if this is how polar bears are getting through, living up in the freezing cold. But it um, it's pretty cool for the people that live there. That is sick. Yeah, mm. no, that's great. You're right, actually. It's the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> Melbourne's not quite there It's just yet. like the same thing. I'm like, ooh, cold. <laughs> I learned that you can hear the difference between different water temperatures when they're poured. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour one after the other mm. into a different glass, and you have to tell me which one is which temperature. I've got a hot and a cold. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yep. Right, here's the first one. Any thoughts? Is this the bodily fluids again? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying cold. It sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Yeah. Here's the second one. Oh! <laughs> oh. oh. Well played. Shut up. <laughs> this is no idea. And now we're going to jump into a little bit of this. <laughs> Yeah, what have you got for us? Oh, oh we have to. There we go. There, there we go. go. Try like, that one again. Okay, wonderful. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> we are talking yeast today. I mean, okay, it's a exactly. Thank you. It's a pretty big organism. Something that's so physically small. It's everywhere. I love it. I love it. There's a lot of fantastic things we couldn't have without it. Unfortunately, Izzy, you can't have many of the things with yeah. it. So, being a celiac, we're going to leave you out of this story. But me and Jay, I think, are going to vibe with this one because we're talking bread. Nice. I love bread. I think it's great. Also, naturally fermented drinks like kombucha and ginger beer also mm-hmm. require yeast. Or scoby. I mean, obviously not all yeast is good, but... That, anyway, getting off track. Have <laughs> <laughs> you baked any yeast dough before? You might know that a lot of recipes will tell you to bloom your yeast in the dark. So essentially you like, 
if you baked, you'll know this. You either get your dry yeast or your cake yeast, you put it in a bowl, and then you feed it some sugar and some mm-hmm. water, and then you just sort of put a towel over it and put it in the dark, and you let it transform those carbs into something magical. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the actual thing is, but it makes it taste really good. <laughs> but you have to do it in the dark because light can actually be really harmful to the process and sometimes even stop it. I mean, I personally, honestly, I think me and my mum used to just leave it out on the bench, but mm-hmm. you are totally meant to put something over it and keep it as dark as possible, which is kind of a bummer because light is everywhere. So it's <laughs> that researchers from Georgia Tech, QS ranking... Georgia oh, Tech. Oh, Georgia Tech. Um, yeah, it's a tech. Tech really changes it, doesn't it? 70. Oh, let's go 54. 97. Oh, okay. 97 for Georgia Jesus. Tech. They have just published their work engineering one of the world's first strains of yeast that prefers the lights on. And according to the researchers, they literally said it wasn't even that hard, which I find <laughs> amazing. Oh, wow. I love that. That is some peak, like, that is scientific riz. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this wasn't hard. I had an easy time of it. So essentially, these guys are, like, biological engineers, and what they're looking for are things that prefer light, and then they use the thing to affect the yeast. So, obviously, something that gains energy from light is going to drastically prefer it. The first thing you probably think of is plants. Mm-hmm. And, question for the team, what allows plants to perform this miraculous process? I, I don't know. Team, the process that plants do that turn light oh, into <laughs> photosynthesis. Oh my god, this is a science show. Dear <laughs> <laughs> Lord, Jizzy. <laughs> Unfortunately, photosynthesis clearly is actually quite complicated. Maybe we need to send you two back to biology. Oh. And the biological building blocks are actually quite complicated to make it happen, like how the actual mechanism works. Mm-hmm. So it'd be pretty complicated to take photosynthesis and put it into yeast because the yeast is a much simpler organism in comparison, mm-hmm. which is why the team turned to rhodopsins. Not entirely sure if I'm saying that correctly, but it looks right. Which are these proteins that can turn light into energy all on their own. Like, they don't need anything else. It's just this protein. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I've never heard of them, but these things are everywhere. Like, they're just all over the tree of life. And the researchers mm-hmm. say that this is because they can do something known as horizontal gene transfer. So... Sick. It's complicated, but essentially it means it's not coming from your common ancestor. It just sort of spreads itself across. Mm-hmm. And it means, because it can do something like that, it means that this gene can slot into place pretty easily in different organisms. So then what these researchers did is they isolated a rhodopsin gene that was synthesised from this parasitic fungus. And they just like, uh, from the media release, it seems like they just plopped it in to some common baker's yeast. They didn't exactly... Or at least I didn't pick up exactly how they did this. I'm going to assume CRISPR because pretty much everything is CRISPR now. But just know they got the rhodopsin gene. They put it into some baker's yeast. And according to them, it just worked. Like <laughs> Immediately, the yeast grew 2% faster when lit, which doesn't Whoa. sound like a huge amount. But at least it's huge for a single gene to make that much of an effect. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of glossed over like a lot of the specific things they did because they're very impressive, but they require so much context that just isn't that exciting. Mm. But the cool thing is that they think by giving the yeast this little superpower, it will enhance its ability to be used in things like biofuels. I was honestly a little disappointed, though, because it doesn't seem like we're going to get any superpowers or even improve our brain in any way, <laughs> which is all I care about. <laughs> huh. Well, that rules. Oh, that's sick. Superpowered wow. yeast. Superpowered yeast. All right, Max is struck down with COVID. He's at home suffering through it. But he has sent in a couple of pre-records for us. So let's have a listen to Max's Weird Science. The Consumer Electronics Show. 
or is it better known as the CES, happened last week in Las Vegas. The show is back in full swing since the pandemic, and no guessing what the manufacturers want to put into all our consumer products, AI and chat GPT. Now here's an eclectic selection of products that were exhibited last week. Now Gabe, I'm looking at you when I talk about these. AI-powered birding binoculars. Austrian company Swarovski unveiled the AX Visio 10x32s. The binoculars use AI to help you quickly identify more than 9,000 birds and other species, as well as provide the ability to take photos and videos to share. And Gabe, they'll set you back just over 7,000 Australian dollars. A voice-activated bidet. Premium bathroom appliance manufacturer Cola introduced the Pure Wash E930 bidet seat with voice command support for Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. With voice assistance, you can control the seat hands-free, turn on the bidet spray, that's front and rear, and its dryer functions as well as its self-cleaning UV feature. Cost is around $3,300 for those looking for hands-free toilet experience. Smart Mollusks. Scan CEO and co-founder Ludovic Quinnau found that a simple, non-invasive sensor attached to a clam or oyster shell can monitor everything from feeding to reproduction and stress responses, which can be excellent predictors of water quality and potential pollution. So Peter, you better get on to that. It's called Scan, a better CPR dummy. Adam X from company Medical X is a patient simulator designed for a range of medical training exercises such as injecting an IV, using a defibrillator, CPR, and much more. The company boasts realistic replications of the human skeleton while giving you reactive feedback based on the patient's needs and how accurate you are in performing said task. Adam X also contains simulated fluids like blood and urine for more realistic training. And finally, a smart mirror. Barracuda showed off what they believe to be the world's first AI-powered smart mirror for mental wellness. The B-Mind mirror uses AI and natural language processing to identify your mood based on your gestures, expressions, and tone. In turn, the mirror can chat with you, generate guided meditation exercises with self-affirmations, and implement light therapy sessions using the mirror's edge. And that's it for my weird consumer science for this week. This is No Idea with Izzy and Jay and Peter. Um, sorry, Peter. <laughs> Turn your mic on. <laughs> We shouldn't right. be given Maybe this power. <laughs> no. Now we're going to play our lovely friend Gabe, who is also away. Um, we're going to play Gabe's weird, oh, Gabe's story, sorry, if I can find it. I mean, it is weird. It is, it is, is it, it is weird? weird. It is pretty weird. It's on Stings 3 or 4. Yeah, sick. All right. This is Gabe with Prairie Vols. Talking about the Vols. The Vols. What can Central Northern American rodents teach us about love? Let's crack this open. The Prairie Vole is one of science's favorite lab rats. Found in the grasslands right up through the center and north of the USA and Canada, Prairie Voles look like little brown rat hamster rodenty things. They're also 
monogamous, one of the special few mammals alongside humans that pick one partner and settle down with them for life. And once they're bonded, like us, they start coordinating their behavior as a couple, which all means scientists love screwing around with them in labs to see what their bonds drive them to do, to understand how mammals love. In the past, lab experiments have found prairie voles show something along the lines of empathy and can learn to help other prairie voles when they're in distress. In one experiment, they separated lifelong partners, gave one of them an electric shock while they were apart, and then put them back together again and saw that the one that didn't get zapped started licking and grooming its stressed mate. And if you think that's a lot, wait till the end of this story. These peculiar prairie vole researchers have, over the years, been narrowing in on something. They're trying to understand the role of chemicals like hormones in this bonding. They've already found that things like oxytocin and vasopressin help prairie voles bond with each other. But this time, they wanted to know about a different hormone. They wanted to know how dopamine, the pleasure chemical, changes how motivated prairie voles are to get back to their bonded mate. We wanted to revisit the question of what is the role of dopamine in motivating an individual to seek out their partner when they've been away for a while. In other words, does dopamine have a part to play in why absence makes the heart grow fonder? That was Associate Professor Zoe Donaldson before, by the way, a behavioral neuroscientist at the University of Colorado Boulder, QS ranking 264. She's one of the authors of this latest study. In a natural context, dopamine is sort of doing the same things as driving us to seek out what we need. And it's really important in the context of forming bonds because it's integral for that pleasurable feeling that we get when we think about our loved ones. So dopamine triggers feelings of pleasure, including in ways that motivate us and help us to learn. But does the dopamine we experience with a partner we're closely bonded to make us more motivated to get back to them when we're apart? To test that, the researchers put two prairie voles in two parts of a fish tank looking enclosure. Between them was either a door with a lever or a fence that they had to climb over. The way that we asked a vole if they wanted to reunite with their partner is that we asked them to work to do so. In one test, we actually had voles climbing over barriers in order to get back to their pair bonded partner. They also had fiber optic sensors attached to them that could detect dopamine in the vole's brains. The region of the brain they hooked into was a region that we also have in our own brains. When the voles opened the door or climbed the fence and saw a random vole on the other side, they only had a small flash in that dopamine sensor. But when they got through that door and over the fence and saw their bonded partner, they lit up like a glow stick. That dopamine kept flowing as they snuggled and sniffed each other once reunited. That means dopamine is probably really important for prairie voles and possibly also humans for motivating them to seek out their partner. The brain wants that dopamine hit it's gonna get when we find them. What we have found essentially is a biological signature of desire. Why we want to be with some people more than we want to be with other people is quite literally a readout of dopamine release in your nucleus accumbens. I mean, it's just cute, right? Like dopamine hits push prairie voles to get back to their special someone. But what dopamine giveth, dopamine can also take away. The researchers did another test, and this is the bit I told you to brace for. This time, they separated bonded pairs of prairie voles for four weeks. Prairie voles only live for about a year or two at a time. Four weeks is a life-changing amount of time. By that time in the wild, they probably would have found someone new they don't have the lifespan to wait around long distance for a month. Then, after those four weeks, the pairs got reunited. According to the researchers, the pairs remembered each other, but the dopamine hit in their brain had almost vanished. 
the dopamine surge of pleasure and motivation has just dissipated back down to the same they'd get for any other prairie vole. Their drive to be with each other was gone. It's possibly something related to them being able to form a new bond with a partner in the wild when their original partner dies, not just gets stolen by an underpaid grad student in some lab in Colorado. The good news though, according to the researchers, is this could mean that humans have some ability to get over a breakup if we can do the sort of unhooking of dopamine that these prairie voles can. Dopamine could also be an underlying component of why certain people may struggle to overcome loss or who have trouble forming deep connections in the first place. But those are some big leaps to make from some slightly abused lab prairie voles, so let's wait for the human trials on those ones. For now, I'll leave you with this. Another way to say this is that our partners, our friends, our close relationships leave a chemical imprint on our brain. And this long-lasting chemical imprint is what helps us to maintain these bonds over time. Damn, that's so weirdly romantic, but also kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> And very well produced, may I add. Gabe <laughs> always I do does. Stories, they're not like this. <laughs> we should never let Gabe on this show. We should only oh, let him send in recorded yeah, send stuff. In stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so much better. Maybe we should just make him make a podcast and then we just play it and then it releases as our podcast because, surprise, we have a podcast rated mm-hmm. five stars on Spotify. Rated five stars, five stars yeah, on Spotify. Tune yeah. in. Yeah. No idea with a K. <laughs> but, yeah, Cape always does the best because what was it? Last last juicy episode we had the the well-known echidna penis, mm-hmm. um, which turning on the mics after that was like a flurry of just like, wow, but also, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of penis facts in his brain, just generally. That I get clip, that. That's going to be another little... <laughs> <laughs> another sting for the that's show. sting for the show. There we go. <laughs> All right. Now, the good thing is we may not have Max, we may not have Gabe, but we do have Peter. Hello, Peter. Hello. We've managed to rope you in and get you on air, and you are our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist. Master marine I am. scientist. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I am. <laughs> do you have any marine science for us? Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, I know. But it's important. So, as you guys know, I've been trying really hard to try and stick to positive stories, Mm -hmm. which is actually kind of hard in my field. Like, Mm -hmm. whenever I'm... Look, every week when I'm trying to find a cool new ocean fact, it's like ocean dying, ocean warming, (laughs) ocean becoming acidic. (laughs) Things are much worse than we thought. Oh, my God, everything's dying. (laughs) That's my feed. And then I go like, hmm octopuses blah 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 like, oh okay well I'll do that one but i just think <laughs> i probably left it a little long now and i should probably give you a climate change update update on climate change well, hey, love that stuff i know exciting <laughs> but it is it, i mean it, i think it's really interesting i've always been a huge weather nerd like when i was a kid i used to collect documentaries and my favorite ones were always about the weather i'm obsessed with the weather and clouds mm-hmm. and i think the way that climate change interacts with weather is something that is actually really phenomenally interesting that we don't talk about that much, probably because we want to focus on the main things, which is just getting away from fossil fuels and actually fixing the problem. Mm-hmm. But it is also important, I think, for people to understand how climate change is going to affect us. And one of the things that it's going to affect us most in is weather, right? Because that's what we interact with every single day of our lives. Mm-hmm. And essentially, I guess most people know the basics of climate change now. It's getting warmer. I won't bore you with the revision. You know how it's working generally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as our planet is getting warmer and hotter, really, I mean, 2023 was actually our hottest year on record. 77 countries reached new records and heat waves have been sweeping the globe. In reality, 2023 
kind of been our first glimpse of life above 1.5 degrees. But let's talk about this weather thing and how with climate change, it actually makes our weather and weather events specifically more frequent and more intense. Mm -hmm. So everything from snowstorms to bushfires and droughts are being intensified by climate change. And you've probably noticed, to be honest, a lot of them, in fact, are connected to the global water cycle, which is being dramatically changed. And we know this, at least for last year, because some very dedicated and honestly emotionally fortified Mm -hmm. researchers from ANU, QS Ranking, Oh, and you, I feel like I should know this. We should just know all the Australian ones. Yeah, I feel like we don't have that many universities and they're all pretty high Uh, up, like they're low numbers. We should know this. uh, 30. (laughs) (laughs) That actually, Actually, that's ridiculous. um, Yeah, we're going to go 48. It's actually 34. Whoa! I know. Props to ANU. Okay, that was a brief moment of happiness for our universities. But essentially these fantastic researchers, obviously, because they're ANU, uh, mapped out last year's weather and, like, weather events and related them to the climate and sort of saw how all these major weather events that happened last year across the globe were linked to our water cycle and climate change at a stretch. Mm. So for Aussies on the East Coast, I know this is going to sound insane as I sit here on a towel because it's so muggy, but (laughs) the global air surface was actually the second driest on record last year, with most hot temperatures around the globe being associated with incredibly dry air. Now, this is, I know, I kind of prefer it, to be honest. Mm. Being raised in Queensland, I feel like I've had more than my fair share of humidity, Mm -hmm. but plants disagree with me. They really don't like dry air. Because these dry air heat waves cause rapid drying, which around the world last year meant widespread crop failures and forest fires. Some of these were already on top of intense droughts, which are just sort of popping up all over the place. I mean, did you know the Amazon rainforest experienced a severe drought last year? Yeah, insane. That's insane. I mean, let's be clear about this. Something I learned in uni, uh, which actually came to a surprise to me, it can sound strange to an Australian to hear something had a drought within like a month (laughs) or a year because for us droughts are like five to ten years so Mm -hmm. it's not something that happens that quickly but a drought is actually relative so you go how much water do we expect on a daily basis or how much water do we expect in some time period Mm -hmm. and have we reached that and droughts can also be both short and long term so some places in the world can technically be in a drought with only a few days without rain (laughs) which boggles my mind because in Australia it's like you've had three years without rain yeah, wait another. <laughs> We're a very different place. But the, Australia is already has already kind of become quite aridified. We're one of the most arid places on the planet. And the world generally is now sort of keep catching up. It's becoming a drier place in general, which is causing a lot of concern with food security and fires. But mm. obviously, this lack of moisture isn't universal. We here on the east coast of Australia have been in an absolute deluge, especially when you consider that this year is an El Nino, which is supposed to be dry for us. Mm-hmm. So... What's generally happening is dry areas are getting drier, wet areas are getting wetter, and amongst all of that is just some chaos sprinkled in. So every so often something's going to happen that we're not going to expect. There's no... Every time I say something is happening generally, just assume that something is going to break that pattern because nothing is as it seems. There were several major flooding events last year globally partially caused by this spike in intense storm systems. So... The increase in sea temperatures around the world in tandem with the changes in circulation of our currents have actually started to really amp up our storms. This is something that was predicted a while ago, but we're just starting to see that happening now. 
Not only are the strength and rainfall intensity of these massive storms increasing, but we're also seeing a lot of other strange behaviour, like popping up in unlikely places. So like the cyclone in the Mediterranean last year was weird time, weird place. And even Cyclone Gabrielle in Aotearoa, New Zealand, mm-hmm. sort of a weird place, sort of a weird time, and it, they caused massive damage. Some other storms are just moving super, super slowly. Like there was a record-breaking multi-week cyclone in southeastern Africa last year. And put together, the global damage from cyclones alone last year in 2023 was estimated to be about 45 billion US dollars. Jeez. Yeah, like that is an insane stat. And I also want to point out that personally, I don't love just looking at damage from storms and climate change in economic terms because that's really only looking at physical damage it's not looking at the damage of trauma generally i don't know how they got this specific number but usually it doesn't take into account like all of the mental health services and even that to me just feels really basic like it's not talking about the emotional toll on people's lives in any real way like Mm. how this is actually affecting people like how people have to move how their lives will be up pulled up at the roots yeah so these cyclones and these storms, while I'm a storm lover, they are causing massive damage. And I've only really spoken about two specific systems here, wet and dry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this pattern of intense and dramatic weather events is picking up globally and it's something that we're going to have to learn to deal with as our planet continues to warm on top of the global food challenge and the biodiversity crisis. Just a few things. Just Just a a few few things. things You know, a few things. And I'm going to be honest, this yet again is going to remind us of the actual effects of relying on fossil fuels and our habit with them and push us towards change. But I am also aware that saying this on 4 Z is likely preaching to the choir. Like, you know this, you probably all do doubt, like, a lot of climate action. Mm. So outside of that, I want to just remind everyone, please remember to make a storm, fire and flood plan or an emergency plan with your household. Get emergency ready. Make sure your plan is known to everyone. And if you need help making emergency plans, Queensland Government has a really good uh, resource at getready.qld.gov.au forward slash plan. So please get on that and make sure you are ready. You can also find um, ABC News has written like a thing on um, how to put together an emergency kit. Anyways, I did that story, yeah. so you know, well, just say ABC News of like, yeah, no, I'm yeah. Seeing- <laughs> you're getting so like infomercial here I have no idea make sure the drugs you're taking is correct have a coat um, yeah, have a fire um, safety plan we're here for you today really yeah, this is just your yearly reminder from no idea about <laughs> well, how to live your life um, exactly. but in all reality like this is very important and it's also something I think as young people we're mm-hmm. sort of like we've grown up in this crisis I don't remember a year of my life where I haven't been told to make a fire plan and I haven't done it mm. so, <laughs> like it's just something that feels like it's inevitable but also not something i have in priority so please even if you're just in a share house like the reason i say household is not because this is not just mum and dads and families like this is not your little like advertisement on tv this is everyone who lives in areas if you're in brisbane mm-hmm. please make sure you have a flood plan it's very very important sick awesome well, well thank you peter thank and you, peter. um we're gonna no jump <laughs> <laughs> everyone at the station knows uh, which shows the most appreciated? Uncancelable. Yeah. That's what I love to say about us. <laughs> everything we do, everything we say, everything we've ever put online, uncancelable. Yeah. You're tuned into Four Triple Z on no, no idea on Four Triple Z. We've swapped seats now. It's Jay behind the desk, using the microphones, hitting the buttons, making stuff work, and we're gonna listen to Max's motor science and i hate having i hate having to press this myself 
but here you go. Here's my own performance of the Motor App intro. Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to four triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I will keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand that mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. It's lights out, and away we go. Dakar 2024, nine stages out of 12 have now been completed. The overall rankings, in the top bike category, we have two Australian riders in the top 10. In sixth, there is Gold Coaster, Toby Price, and in eighth, the Colonel, Daniel Sanders, both riding KTMs. In the Ultimate Cars division, Audi is still leading, with Carlos Sainz's dad, El Matador, Carlos Sainz Sr. at 61, showing the younger drivers how it's done. 20 minutes behind is Frenchman Sebastian Loeb, who turns 50 this year. There has always been a great rivalry between these two rally drivers. Carlos was the big rally champion during the 90s, and Loeb took over in the noughties. F1, some big news, arguably one of the most popular Formula 1 team managers has been shown the door. Hass's F1 Gunter Steiner has been sacked. He was given the news during the winter break. Unfortunately, 2023 saw Team Hass finish last in the F1 Constructors Championship. So team owner Gene Hass clearly has had enough and fired Steiner. How this will play out, we'll have to wait and see. New manager is the team's now former director of engineering, Ao Komatsu. The Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. Valtteri will be attending the Adelaide Motorsport Festival in the week leading up to the Australian GP held in Melbourne. He attended last year's festival, but everything was a bit too rushed for the honorary Australian. Organisers only managed to get Bottas behind the wheel of a last-gen V8 supercar. This year, they hope he will get to drive so much more that Australia has to offer. Meanwhile, the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, is gearing up for a busy year of racing in 2024 on and off the track. He's professionally obligated to attend at least 30 race weekends. That's 18 in IndyCar, 7 driving in endurance races, and 5 doing guest F1 commentary. And that is it for the Motor App this week. <laughs> Riz means like charisma, by the way. Max. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> from the university, <laughs> from the University of Sussex, Sussex, oh, Sussex, yeah. Sussex. Curious ranking. Curious ranking. Sixty-nine. This is for Triple Z. You're listening to No Idea, our weekly science show. And if you're just tuning in for the first time now, well, you've tuned in at a bad time for science because we just had a listen to our co-host Max's racing science, which he does every week. And since Max sure. gets to have have his little corner of just doing whatever the <laughs> hell he wants on this show i get i'm behind the desk today i'm the one fiddling with all the stuff and i get my little moment as well is what i'm saying <laughs> if i if i'm gonna be here i'm gonna be talking about the things that this is my science for the week it's pop culture science a weird cool. science so this is what we're doing now it's just like this is why we have two hours we Get have that. one hour of science in the other <laughs> hour like, i don't know whatever who's who's behind the desk what do you want to chat about exactly yeah. amazing 
well yes exactly that guys it's just it's just been the end of award season like tv film and tv award season we had in like s- such a quick succession <laughs> we had um the golden <laughs> Wait, no, i got that <laughs> We had the Golden Globes, we had the Critics' Choice Awards, and then we had the Emmys, like, literally a day afterwards. Um, And when I said off-air that I was going to be bringing this up, Peter was like, all the award ceremonies seem to be, like, kind of weirdly close together this Mm -hmm. year. Yes, they are. That's because a bunch of them were delayed because of the writer strikes. Mm -hmm. Good thing, too. Writers deserve to be there. Yeah, and a lot of, like... the writer's strike. Actors and writers who were involved in the show obviously wouldn't have been able to participate, and also writers for like the hosts and the people who are oh, they need them yeah mm-hmm. which didn't necessarily help in the case of joe coy yeah. but you know <laughs> <laughs> that's all right yeah mm. what a great time to be a fan of hbo's hit drama succession mm. if you mm. know me Doesn't at an all australian play one of the main characters yes, yes. sarah yes. snook okay. from her. adelaide Originally. Wasn't her acceptance speech so gorgeous though? Like it was so cute. So okay, I'm all about everyone who knows me knows I've been about succession since about like May last year. It's just been in my brain living there and like eating up all the spare space. (laughs) Which is horrible, but you know, I survive. But my favourite of all time are the evil twins, Roman and Shiv, and they've just been winning everything. Mm-hmm, Kerry Culkin, mm-hmm. Sarah Snook, going through, they won the Golden Globes, they won the Critics' Choice Awards, and they won the Emmys. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and yeah, it's been really cool seeing um, Sarah's little speech where mm-hmm. she, she talked about after the Emmys, after she won the Emmy, she talked about what it was like being pregnant while filming mm-hmm. and um, the fact that you know everything she does she does for her but baby her baby daughter oh, yeah oh no that stuff makes me cry <laughs> no it is so no, I'm a weeper another thing that I just like loved about it there was I guess the lead contender for lead actor in a drama series was obviously Kieran from the start mm-hmm. but a lot of people thought that Pedro Pascal was going to sweep it because of The Last of Us and they had a lot of like beef on stage which yeah, I, hilarious. I really enjoyed iconic when Kieran won the Golden Globe he was immediately like suck it Pedro this one's mine and then in the Emmys Pedro was announcing one of the awards and he was like, you might be wondering why my arm's in a sling. It's because Karen Culkin beat, <laughs> beat me up. <laughs> so I just love it when actors have beef with each other as a joke. I love parasocial relationships. I, I love, I love them. Yep. Mm, I don't need any real social relationships. I'm all about uh-huh. parasocial. <laughs> well, for, for every parasocial relationship, have you also seen the amount of, like, kissing happening as well well yes <laughs> yes i have yeah <laughs> I, I don't know what and, like, it is the about dangers of it award ceremonies and men just <laughs> <laughs> not even that but just like a lot of kissing yeah welcome to the science show yeah, welcome to the science show where we're talking about why do men kiss <laughs> each other on this probably daniel jr and some um, sicilian murphy kissing Killian at murphy. Hmm? Killian, yeah. Killian murphy. murphy do you know why i know it's killian murphy because every time i hear it i'm like that doesn't sound right oh okay, but okay. it is at <laughs> <laughs> uh, the critics choice award called killian who mm-hmm. would beat me up if i said cillian <laughs> <laughs> it's cillian it makes sense it He's does a silly sense. guy Phonically. oh my goodness <laughs> sorry <laughs> i fear for your safety <laughs> Yeah, a lot of it going around, which we love to see. We truly love to see. 
Mm. Love. Platonic like male intimacy. Were there any other highlights for you guys? Like, I know I'm probably the only one of us who actually sat down and watched all three ceremonies from red carpet to like until it came up saying live stream ended, go home, which was like <laughs> three hours per ceremony, and I was just glued to the screen. But did any of you guys have any highlights from I think award season? For me, it's been just seeing women competing. Mm-hmm. And I think this especially was in light of what happened at, I think it was the Golden Globes. I don't really keep up to date with awards culture anymore since I left my Tumblr behind. <laughs> but I think after, I, I got really, really angry, genuinely up, mm. upset and angry at what happened at the Golden Globes with the Barbie joke and sp- <gasps> oh, specifically. Yeah. 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 It just felt like we've had such a monumental year as women and the fact that I mean it, the aftermath was sort of reassuring but at the same time the fact that several people approved that joke and thought ha people will laugh at this is actually really upsetting and just felt like so many steps back the joke I'm referencing by the way was the one about Barbie just being about a doll mm-hmm. <laughs> with big boobs with certain mm-hmm. anatomy yeah which is a like clearly you didn't watch the movie because right. like, you have no idea what it was about embarrass yourself louder mm-hmm. but also just I, I think post that it's been wonderful to see all the women just like really i think we're really coming into ourselves in the part where we feel free to express our excitement and like really pulling into girlhood and being like i'm happy no matter who wins because i love them because i think she's fantastic and i think she's talented and i think she's worked hard to be where she is and i i just can see all the passion oozing out of her and seeing not just that in like people's passive facial expressions and like the panning of cameras and whatever but also whenever I've heard women talking about each other this award season which is when you can usually hear talented people in the arts talk about each other mm-hmm. I've not heard a single negative thing everything has been positive and it's all been and not that I thought that was prevalent usually before but it's just it's been very purposeful you can hear everyone saying no she deserves this she has been she's been driven and she knows what she's doing and she's talented and she cares mm. about what she's talking about and and her craft and i just i really really enjoyed that personally love it yeah absolutely there was definitely such a big focus this year on women in film and television and celebrating the achievements of women in film and television and yeah mm-hmm. that that like whole comedy bit i mean i know everyone is already saying like that it was awkward but it was just so awkward and literally like watch the, <laughs> watch the movies like why are you making jokes about like well no one could sit through oppenheimer to a room full of people who like all watched Oppenheimer? <laughs> like yeah we're Everything yeah. awkward and strange. Like he's I, just clearly not a very good comedian. But at the yeah, same time, like, I think it's brought on like to, oh, yeah. a conversation about oh. who we're picking for these types of roles as well. Whether it's just like a comedian who's well past their due date, or like <laughs> <laughs> some who's expired. Right, where to put it? Expired. Who has expired? Or just like yeah, conversation about. It can completely, a bad joke can completely ruin an entire moment for film history and just like, people don't talk, people talk about the jokes but not about like the awards. So I think it's almost like, it's almost like a performance in itself for these award ceremonies, especially for people like who they choose to spotlight, comedians or actors. But yeah, I definitely agree with you, Peter, about like just the womanhood and also just like this familiarity within like actors where it is just uplifting and it's so much nicer especially like I'm, I'm just cast my mind back to like the Will Smith Kevin Hart thing and how it divided a lot of people and now I just love to see woman winning 
up like yeah. far above us. I'm still not over Quinta <laughs> Brunson oh winning God, yes. Abbott Elementary. And Io winning yeah. everything. The bear sweep. Okay, I haven't watched the bear. I need to and mm-hmm. I know that when I watch it it's going to change my life and it's going to be anything everything I talk about for the next year <laughs> so that's why I've put it off because I'm like I have to wait until mm-hmm. I'm ready for this to be the only thing that I, I can do that think all the time about. shows right I need to be in the right mood I need right. to digest you need to schedule it in I yeah, yeah I, I need to schedule it in because I need to dedicate six to nine months to mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. oh literally I have cookies baking for Percy Jackson tonight like <gasps> oh my god so true, so yeah true. but um <laughs> yeah seeing seeing the bear sweep everything and especially like I just love her so much so seeing her win everything um yeah has been like especially really awesome yep. Especially, I especially, I was just how things get in different categories. Like, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I was honestly really shocked when Barbie didn't win Best Picture. I'm not super familiar with award shows and how things work, but I was just like, how, how, like, how was it not even nominated for that? How was it like it was Best Adaptation or something? I think, and then in another one, it was Best Comedy. And I agree that it's a comedy. I'm not so sure. I agree that it's an adaptation, but it just it confuses me how. Actually, this is this is a point I saw on TikTok that I kind of want to repeat because I thought it was really interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Barbie was listed as an ad- adaptation, but Oppenheimer wasn't, even though it was based on a book, which is the definition of an adaptation. Mm. That's a good point. But yeah, I was really interested by that. And I think, I mean, I don't doubt that to some extent it had to do with the fact that Barbie was Barbie. Like, yeah. it's a clearly pink and gingham and like out there and over the top but Oppenheimer's serious and like it is based on a very serious topic to which I wasn't entirely comfortable watching but like yeah that sort of discrepancy did pull at me a bit Mm. yeah although at least if they're in opposite category in different categories and they're not like competing against each other (laughs) yeah at least it's nice but yeah i also saw this really interesting thing that was talking about how a lot of the comedy tv shows like the bear i think barry was put in Mm -hmm, comedy mm -hmm. only murders in the building for the house the bear was in comedy Right, yeah, this is what I mean. A lot Such of people a have been talking. Realism based show, though. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people have been talking about the fact that these comedy shows are pretty like heavy on drama. And I think even if you're going to categorize The Bear or Barry as comedy, you could almost categorize Succession as comedy in the same yeah. vein because it is like a funny show. Mm. It's like a dramedy. So mm. I, I love think, that word. But yeah, I know me too. <laughs> but I was seeing this really interesting thing that was talking about how these days, like that kind of like pure comedy, that sort of mm-hmm. sitcom, sort of just pure comedy, is what we get from like TikTok and YouTube and Instagram yeah, that's and true, that sort actually. of thing. So we're not really turning to TV shows as much to be pure comedy anymore. And so a lot of what we have as comedy shows are those shows that also have really heavy hitting drama aspects and that sort of thing too which i thought was really interesting that is interesting and totally true because yeah if i want to laugh i do head to tiktok <laughs> i don't go anywhere else like funny people are on tiktok <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all right we've talked enough about uh all the awards and the science of it <laughs> So I did do some genuine. I was like, surely there's like some science that I can pull from. Like, I, I do think my brain could have been dissected at any point during those three award shows, and some very interesting things would have come out. I am sure. Anatomy about that. of a fanboy. Yes, no. exactly. Band <laughs> name called it. Called it. That's my band name. Yeah, that's great. That's good. All right. 
you know, the iPad generation criticisms oh, yeah. there. Gen Alpha? And about, I have criticisms. Yeah, it was some, some research out of Drexel with an X. They found that babies and toddlers exposed to television or video viewing may be more likely to exhibit atypical sensory behaviours, yeah. um, like being disengaged, disinterested in activities, seeking mm. more intense stimulation in the environment. A lot of these things that we think of over the airwaves, uh, we have a small little base. get you, Gay. They are coming to get me. <laughs> but no, All those iPad kids. <laughs> I find, I found your lair. <laughs> they want their iPads back. Yeah. You're listening to No Idea on 4ZZZ. It is your weekly dose of science. And we had a text in from Sean. Sean texted in to say, top show this morning and that we've been keeping Sean company while they drive around finding parts for to fix their PC. Best good of luck, luck with that. Good luck with that. <laughs> I also luck. had my I had my computer died on Christmas Day, which was awesome, and I just got it back a couple days ago after my mum, who's great with all that sort of stuff, ripped it to pieces and threw out all the bits that were broken. And Magic. <laughs> Christmas Saga was fantastic. Love it. But I... Really appreciate you texting in, and thank you to everyone else who's listening. If you also want to text in, you can hit us up, 0420-626-733. Let us know what your top kiss of the Emmys <laughs> was. We've mm-hmm. been talking about it off air. <laughs> mm, of all time, too. It doesn't have to be recent. Mm, yeah. So true. But we better get into this quick, because we are running out of time super fast. Uh, we are going to listen to Gabe, who is not here, but here with us in spirit, chat about Megafauna. I have a story that I mentioned this at the top of the show, but this has like captivated me for ages because it's all about the world of paleontology. For those unacquainted with like the academic world of paleontologists, like people who study, you know, fossils and the fossil record and and everything that goes along with it, they get really mean. Like science is a nice place. It's a cordial place. Everyone's sort of above board. Paleontologists take it to another level. There is like serious fighting in these papers they're slamming each other in these like peer-reviewed scientific articles just ripping each other to to shreds and there's a story that i think just like is the perfect example of this and it's all like come to a head with the release of another paper that came out and it's like i think we've i think we've probably reached the end to the story with the release (laughs) of this paper so i'm going to take you back from a from the, the very start of this it comes down to a fight over who laid, or what bird, laid a couple of egg fragments that have been discovered in some sand dunes north of Adelaide, near Port Augusta? Um, in 1981 was the first, like, major paper that came out about them, and they found these egg samples in the area, which they say they f- had from emus from about 50,000 years ago and older. But e- emus were a bunch of them, and they also found something else, some more eggshells, which they say came from the not so little thing called Genionis newtoni, which is the scientific name for it. Also, just sort of, there was a couple species, so most people just call them Genionis. But the tabloid name is Thunderbird. If you want to have a oh, look at these. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm up with it. Yeah. I've you, been to Mount Tambourine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. If you want to have a look at a picture of these and if you want to play along with the story, I just posted stuff on our socials, no idea, with a K. Yes. On Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Should be there. Four triple Z. No idea. Four triple Z. That's the one. And this thing is huge. It is two to two and a half meters tall by most estimates, like a massive bird and, and up to like 250 kilograms ish. It's disputed how big they actually got, but like at least 150 kilos 
up into the 250-ish, 275 range for these birds, which is like 150 to 200 kilos heavier than emus and cassowaries. Like, they're huge birds and massive weighty things. And there's evidence thunder of thunderbirds from a few hundred thousand years ago right up until this 50,000-year-old mark, which for something big and tasty that going extinct about 50,000 years ago on this continent raises some eyebrows because it seems to be about the same time that the first Australians, mm. first humans arrived in Australia, which has sparked... It's It's been like one of the big catalysts of a massive debate that has raged on what sent a lot of Australia's megafauna extinct. Right. There's been yep. long documented declines from a few hundred thousand years ago through to around this forty to 60,000-year-old uh, a year ago time frame, which is when humans arrived. It's also the time frame of a, a change in the climate across the country, long-term changes of, of like a ridification and heating up from the inside out. So there's documented declines in a lot of species. We know a lot of megafauna went extinct before people arrived, but then there's also a couple species like these thunderbirds that seem to just have sort of clicked off and we don't find any more around the same time that humans rocked up on the continent. And so species like the, these eggshells are some of the big evidence that suggests that humans played a part in the final extinction of most of our megafauna. We still have some, like red kangaroos count as megafauna and they, like there's st stuff around still, but a lot of them, like the giant wombats, diprotodons, the giant thunderbirds, there's, there's something called like murder ducks as well, like another type of giant bird, <laughs> dromonithids. Murder ducks. Yeah, huge. Latin name. Yeah, and, and, and marsupial lions and stuff, all these things, a lot of them seem to have gone extinct around this time when humans seem to have rocked up. So this is, and these eggshells have been a big part of it. One of the reasons for that is because some of the shell fragments have been like they've they've analyzed them and it turns out they've been burned and these are some of the younger eggshells. They the scientific sort of analysis of them seems to point to it not being like a wildfire bushfire burn, but a cooking burn. More like an omelet situation. Exactly, an omelet <laughs> situation going on, which is kind of like feels like the nail in the coffin like they were around until humans rocked up. Some of them seem to have burn marks on the eggshell. Seems like humans at least did the final push of knocking them off the edge into extinction when when they arrived. But there's 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 more to this story because after that, a couple the, the 1981 paper, some more papers came out, sort of confirming the same sort of stuff, looking at like the eggshells sizes that they were getting and the thickness, and doing all this analysis of how it compared to extinct and and not extinct birds still around, and all sort of going, yeah, no, this seems like it would be. Probably from the, the, these Geniornis thunderbirds seem like the most likely source for these egg fragments. There was a little piece in the problem, though, because the eggs themselves were quite small. If you have a look at the photo on our socials, you'll see they are a little bit bigger than an emu egg. And Geniornis themselves are pretty damn big, like 100, 200 kilos heavier. So the fact that their eggs are so small raised some suspicions about how they would sit on their eggs without crushing them, <laughs> right? Like a pretty big opening in like, well, this doesn't seem really legit. There was um, one guy who released a paper then which sparked the, this chain of back and forth of just fighting between these paleontologists. One guy put out a paper and he said the he estimated from like the size of the of one particular egg that he, he reckons he reconstructed pretty well from a, several different fragments, the weight that it could hold would be 7 to 18 times lower than the weight of an adult thunderbird. So it would it would like the weight that the egg could sustain on top of it 7 to 18 times lower mm, than yeah. the the adult bird which is not 
horrible like big birds we have around today like ostriches emus and cassowaries their their adults are about three times heavier than the maximum weight an individual egg can hold because they're not like standing on one foot on top of it with their full weight they sort of yeah. spread it across and they'll sit down on top but seven to 18 times heavier than what the egg can hold seems a bit off yeah. like this the, yeah, the, they would just be crushing it there was high. yeah exactly yeah. and then another paper came out two years after that in 2016 which put out all this other stuff as well which like if there's a small egg small eggs don't work for birds that live on the ground like max was talking about pheasants uh, before and like a lot of them are ground dwelling or, or spend a lot of time on the ground and if you look at those sorts of birds like the musk plovers that are around brisbane the mm-hmm. the brownie white yellow face ones birds that start on the ground are like really susceptible to getting eaten straight away so yeah. they they grow really big in the egg and they pop out like ready to go right. and can start running around and running away from stuff themselves these giant birds hatching really small doesn't really work with that idea it's like how would they survive against all the predators that are around at the time if they pop out really small and can't like run around on their own there was stuff on like the diet doesn't seem to match the dune habitat the eggshells were found in there were minute differences in the structures of the eggs that they were finding and they were like these seem more similar to other types of birds after all of that they concluded that these eggshells in 2016 they said these eggshells weren't from the giant thunderbird they were probably from a big extinct relative of the mallyfowl which is like a little pheasant looking thing that we still have some some relatives of living today still a large bird we're talking tens maybe 20 kilograms uh, in weight but not 200 plus kilograms that these mm. thunderbirds were yep. like a very very different type of bird they look kind of like chicken bush turkey things just bigger yeah which makes also expand why explain why they found them in sand dunes because these birds bury eggs like bush turkeys do to keep them warm while they're incubating so like it all sort of made sense they were like oh yeah this seems like they're probably not these giant birds which then screws up the whole idea that they were knocked off by humans and goes back into this the court of climate change not sent them extinct and and pulled out this massive piece of evidence that was behind this idea that Australia's megafauna got driven extinct largely by, or substantially by humans. The Thunderbird crowd fired back, though. Since then, there have been three more papers that have come out, one straight after the the one came out that said it's not the, the Thunderbird. Uh, the first one attack that came out straight after was just like, it was like an opinion piece in a scientific paper. Yeah, like, they yeah. just ripped the methodology to shreds. They I were love so, reading those. Yes, it was so much fun. So amazing how much they attacked it. So but they're petty. like, the idea that the egg was too small is crap. They pointed out all these methodology issues being like, you, you combined egg samples and you use like one egg for most of it and you ignore the upper range of your estimates and they, uh, they attacked them for suggesting the giant Mally fowl as a real parent they said their diets were even worse for them to be existing in sand dunes like they need fruits and things that are just nowhere near where these eggs were found they said that the organic components don't match in the eggs to what the diet of the birds would have been like they were doing isotope analysis of the eggshells and 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 just completely tore them to shreds they said the aussie sand dunes are too cold to incubate eggs they say they have different shaped eggs that these mallee fowl birds than the one that they found whole bunch more stuff uh, and then in the recent two, they pulled out the big guns to really just, I think, and I think we've, we've reached the end now. They pulled out uh, DNA testing. Uh. Uh. <laughs> so there's been successful extraction of DNA from ex- uh, like fossilized eggs from the moa, the giant birds are in New Zealand yeah, yeah, yeah. previously and did go extinct from humans in there. Um, unfortunately, this case, the 50,000 years under the Aussie sun was too much. All the DNA was wrecked. They couldn't get DNA from these eggshells. But proteins 
the molecular building blocks of the cells can provide similar info, quite as specific, but pretty similar and can stand the test of time a bit better. The individual like amino acids that yep. build proteins can, can stand up to, to UV and stuff a bit better over time. And they were able to retrieve partial protein sequences from these eggshells, used a software, an AI, Google-owned DeepMind software called AlphaFold to generate predicted structures like they got the amino acids they use ai to rebuild what these amino acids would have been structured like to get an idea for the proteins and then they went to this massive bird genome project in the uk and were like plug this into your thing and show us where these eggshells sit and it ruled out completely ruled out the idea that they were these mally fowl megapode type birds Mm. it was like nothing like that it sort of put it into a group that is like one step above Jenny Ornis, like in the tax, like the, the family tree, yeah. it was one step above and didn't have a direct match. So they said from that one, which this was uh, like two years ago, I think, they were like, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's definitely pretty close to this Jenny Ornis. We don't have a better explanation, so we're going to say it's Thunderbirds and go with it. And there was also other stuff where they pointed out like the thickness of the egg and the size of the egg probably could have withstood the mass of the bird on top of it as well like they acknowledge that there was some there's more that needs to be done but they say you can't say that it would have been crushed like it's not enough evidence to kick out all of this protein stuff that they were doing they followed that up with new research on the eating habits which have confirmed this idea that the the diets because they can like use these isotopes in the eggshells through time and see how the diets change and they sort of found that their diet shifted throughout the time period from the, the, like the oldest eggshells to the youngest, which suggests that there was a change in climate going on, doing something and affecting these birds. But they also say at the end, like some of our youngest ones have human burn marks on them. We're pretty sure at this stage they are the Thunderbirds. So the, I, I think what we've landed on yeah, I think, is that <laughs> these eggshells were there. The, the birds did ha- get impacted to some extent by a change in climate across the country for over hundreds of thousands of years, got pushed probably got pushed towards extinction from that pushed out of habitat and stuff and then knocked off the final sort of nail in the coffin was humans eating the last of them uh, when they arrived on the continent around 50,000 years ago which is a long story but is one that I've been following for years since like I was at uni in 2016 giving talks on this stuff when like those papers came out trashing the idea that it was the Thunderbird (laughs) and it was all exciting and I think we've finally reached the end of this idea and it's yeah, it does mean a lot for how we like look at the megafauna in our past and how it was affected because it, 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 the way that they get impacted by the climate change versus the direct human like predation stuff does have implications for how we manage ecosystems now in the face of a changing climate. Like we can't potentially can't take that as an example of what could happen because there was uh, this other pressure of humans definitely having an impact. And, and basically eating them into extinction, the last of these species. And that is the story of the Thunderbird Oh my God! from start to finish. It's so funny how, like, petty and spiteful some of that <laughs> research felt. <laughs> it's yes. sort of like the scientific version of a TikTok comment section. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a Stitcher duet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, this is why the original poster is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's such a saga. I'm in love with it. You were tuned into No Idea on 4ZZZ, and we are very, very, very almost out of time. So I'm very quickly gonna play you some of this no idea space news short and sweet this week ingenuity it's official mars mini choppers number of flights does currently sit at 71 the no idea team has to reset all our predictions now that izzy 69 has been reached and surpassed new targets peter 88 max 100 gabe 
120, and Izzy announced last week 111, just waiting on V and J to submit their targets. Peregrine, the commercial moonlander that was meant to drop off its payload on the lunar surface, is making its way back to Earth. Unfortunately, the lander has been venting propellant due to a sticky valve, which ruled out completing its moon landing mission. It is now on its way home, potentially hitting Earth's atmosphere and burning up. Very sad face indeed. SpaceX has revealed while Test 2 Starship started wobbling and exploded before reaching its objective. Apparently, because there was no heavy payload on board, SpaceX had to vent any excess liquid oxygen to simulate a full second stage burn. Unfortunately, the vented oxygen ignited on the outside of the vehicle, causing it to explode. But this bodes well for Test 3, which could happen as soon as next month. My suggestion for Test 3, fuel it up with less liquid oxygen, or call me crazy, carry a quasi-payload. MSR, the Mars Sample Return Mission looks like it may never happen. The idea behind MSR is for a Mars lander to pick up the titanium tubes that have been packed and left behind by the Perseverance rover in the Jezero crater. Once collected, the tubes will take off from Mars and make their way back to a spacecraft that can transport them back to Earth. Latest costs have the mission coming in at a cool $11 billion and rising, and it's probably not worth it. According to Scott Hubbard, former director of NASA's Amos Research Center, who served as the agency's inaugural Mars Exploration Program director from 2000 to 2001, as an easy explanation for MSR's programmatic miscalculations. Historically, he says, NASA has shown a strong tendency to err on the low side of mission costs to get a project approved. The aha moment comes later. NASA counts on this a great deal, whether consciously or unconsciously, he says, especially for ambitious initiatives such as MSR. And that is it for the Space News this week. Thank you, Max, for sending in that very super speedy space news, <laughs> even while you're sick at home. And thank you, listener, for listening to us chat about all things science and a couple of things not quite science over Some the very last not science. two hours. Some <laughs> very not science, but that's all right. Um, thank you, Izzy, for joining me. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank and you, James. Oh, yeah. For me too. As well. Thanks, me too. <laughs> See ya. Later. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science. science.